This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. This week I have on an old friend, um, Mike Kloon, who's a literature professor who's just published an awesome book that everybody should read. Uh, and we're going to talk about whether we can be judgy when we see art. We can. We'll see. Okay, this week we are really happy to welcome on the show Michael Kloon. Mike is the Samuel B. and Virginia C. Knight Professor of Humanities at Case Western Reserve University. He's the author of several books, including American Literature and the Free Market, Writing Against Time, Whiteout, and most recently, A Defense of Judgment. It came out this year with the University of Chicago Press. Uh, but perhaps most importantly, he's the former resident of a dorm room in uh, Fairchild Hall at Oberlin College, uh, circa, circa 1994-95, uh, where we bonded over our shared love of the greatest song of all time, uh, Land Down Under by Men at Work. Uh, so, uh, Mike, so glad to have you on the show. Uh, congratulations on the book. Um, Thank you. And welcome. So... Look, on the face of it, this can appear to be like a really inside baseball kind of book for uh, literature professors. Um, and it's certainly, you know, pitched to them as well. Um, you know, it's, and particularly in higher education, it's published by University Press. It's got a substantial scholarly apparatus, you know, paragraph long endnotes and whatnot. Um, and some of the chapters, particularly at the end of the book, where you sort of put your sort of things in practice will be of particular interest for those who are in the classroom. But even though you happen to be talking about literature, you could be making the same argument for all of the arts and you kind of, you know, uh, gesture to that in the beginning. Um, and the argument is for a defense of judgment in the face of surrendering to a sort of equality absolutism. I don't know what you would call it, but, but, um, that you argue is really about bowing down to the values of the market and defanging the possible, you know, subversive, expansive, and even, you know, unforeseen values of aesthetic education. So could you just sketch out your main claims and then maybe we'll go from there? Yeah. Um, I, and, if, yeah. and also correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> that's a misinterpretation. Sure, sure. So, um, no, that, I think that's a, that's a, a, a fair summary. Um, my, um, uh, you know, I got interested in this project. Really, I really came to it out of my experience uh, publishing as a creative writer, um, working with agents and publishers and, realize, and editors and realizing that um, a lot of people who work in the publishing industry are committed to aesthetic values, are committed to work they believe in and they believe is powerful and new and good. Um, but the but they're in a, engaged in a constant struggle against the marketing people, right? Who are always interested in um, what the you know what consumer preferences are, uh, and so they'll go ba uh, off of um, you know what people have bought uh, in the last couple of years, um, and 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 have that as a baseline that'll determine uh, decisions in in the publishing world more and more uh, frequently. And as I began to look around my own profession, I'm a literature professor, I noticed this strange um, trend in academia over the past, I think it's, you know, it predates my uh, uh, entry into the profession, but over the past 20 or 30 years, um, professors have gotten less comfortable with making judgments, with telling students that 
hey, you should take a literature class or an art history class or a class on music because we're going to expose you to great works uh, uh, that you may not get exposed to in other uh, venues. And we're going to sort of teach you how to appreciate these works. Um, and, and, and this was really surprising to me that more and more uh, professors felt like, hey, it's elitist to do that, right? We're, we're sort of imposing our own views on, um, on the students. And I, and I thought that, that um, without judgment, without the capacity to say, you know, my training, my expertise as a professor is really based on um, my capacity to, to, to help students appreciate uh, uh, great works of art, uh, without that, then what am I doing? What is this whole profession about, right? And so I set out to a explore the sources of the resistance to judgment um, uh, as they've grown up over the past 20 or 30 years, and then to mount a defense of this practice in the face of charges of elitism. Great. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the major things that you talk about um, in the in the beginning of the book is really about, I think the 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 biggest uh, criticism um, and perhaps you know uh, principle that many people uh, will advocate is is equality, right? Right. That equality is a, is a norm and a principle. Uh, it it's you know it's something that we should aspire to, right? And therefore, who is and I think you, you know you you quote I forget who you quote. It's either uh, Northrop Fry or I Richards, basically saying that you know when I when I say read this, I'm saying I'm holier than thou. I know better than you. You should read it. Um, guess what? You should listen to me because I know this stuff, right? And then there's a bit of that when you you know make a syllabus. Uh, Hey, when you make a playlist on Spotify, you know, like, like whatever, you're, you're using those sort of co critical capacities in whatever way. Um, but then people feel icky about it, right? That, that, that who, who are you to say? And that the, the most sort of democratic way to um, elicit um, uh, judgment or, or, or what people should go to is just is sort of a, a sort of rank populism of the market, right? Right. That it's just that, well, people buy this stuff. It must be, you know, 10 million people can't be wrong, you know, so that that becomes the norm. Um, and on, on one hand, I think there's an interesting, you know, point to that. And, you know, we can maybe get into, you know, you, you have this uh, reading of, I forget who the person is, but who, who, who mounts the argument of like, well, one way to sort of thread the needle is to call something interesting, right? <laughs> is, is that it's, it's not good, it's not bad, it's interesting, and therefore you're sort of suspending uh, this, this judgment. But in the end, you're still kind of doing it, you're just kind of faking it. Um, so one of the major things, and we, we talk, you know, on this podcast, we've a lot of politics. We talk about socialism. We're, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders fanatics here. Um, and one of the things that you, you mentioned that um, I think is lost on a lot of people um, is how Karl Marx, um, his driving principle, his animating element of much of his philosophy uh, is not the principle of equality per se. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that might be quite kind of shocking to many. So, um, yeah, the, the, the first, the principle of equality is the one that people often go to, as you're, as you're, as you're uh, uh, suggesting, to um, attack judgment as elitist or as violating 
um, the spirit uh, or principle of equality. And, and so that, that led me to take a look at this principle and, and the sort of complex ways it's worked in our political and cultural life. Um, one thing about uh, uh, equality, and this, this does go back to Karl Marx, and I do think it is, it is surprising to lots of people, but Marx as sort of the, the first and, and arguably the greatest critic of capitalist society and capitalist culture, said in a, in a, um, in a work that is often uh, described as his, his most important contribution to politics, uh, the critique of the Gotha program, Right where he was, um, uh, there was there was basically a a, 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 a a socialist manifesto, a socialist set of principles that were put forward, and he was asked for his uh, uh, feedback, and he basically critiqued what they were doing in a number of ways. And the, his first and most important critique was, "You guys are talking about equal rights and equality as the main principle of socialism," and he said that is not and cannot be the ultimate principle of socialism. And the reason for that is that equality is a, uh, uh, he used the word bourgeois, but it's, it's, it's fundamentally a capitalist uh, uh, principle in that it's abstract, right? And that it, 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 it functions in the context of a system in which actual material inequalities proceed under formal or, you know, formal equalities. Uh, so that, for example, in a, in a, in a famous example, um, you know, if I'm looking for a job and Walmart offers me low wage and, and, and bad benefits and no vacation and so forth, and I say, hey, this doesn't seem very fair, they say, hey, everyone's equal, you know, everyone's equal to, 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 to offer what they can offer, and you're, you know, you're totally free to, to, to take it or leave it, um, free to starve, right, you know, right. Uh, uh, all, all of that, mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and what he said was, Instead of equality being the, the fundamental principle, the fundamental principle should be um, uh, uh, human flourishing, right? In, in, in which he said um, uh, the principle from each according to his or her uh, abilities and to each according to his or her needs, right? That, that, that principle, which, is, which sounds very much like a kind of egalitarian principle, but it's importantly different because Marx saw that the principle of equality could be exploited over and over again to justify the actual inequities of the capitalist market. And, and, we've, and we've seen this um, uh, over and over again. And people have had tried to distinguish between formal equality, which is the equality we have under a, a set of laws in the capitalist society, and something like substantive equality, which would be something sometimes people call it equality of outcomes, right? Um, but, but what Marx's insight shows us is that there's something about the appeal to equality which will often function to undercut and to justify the peculiar kinds of oppressions that are generated by the capitalist marketplace. And the way this works in culture is, is simply that uh, 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 people will say, um, everyone is equal, everyone is, uh, everyone's choices and opinions are equal, right? And so there's an extension of the, of the principle of equality to, of persons to equality of opinions and preferences, right? But of course, once we say no one's opinion is better than anyone else's or no one's taste is better than anyone else's, what we make the way for is, is various other, it, it creates a cover for various other kinds of oppression. One example in the world of science, um, of course, would be the idea that uh, 
this, the widespread suspicion of scientific expertise, right? Which, uh, we, which we've all been thinking about and talking about a lot in the wake of COVID, uh, anti-vaxxers, uh, uh, COVID denial, um, climate change denial, and so forth are all manifestations of this principle of, hey, who are you to tell me what to believe, right? I look at it in the, in the realm of culture, which uh, is, is different than the scientific realm, but that same principle of a suspicion of expertise, an idea that, hey, these English professors or art professors or, or, or museum creators or whatever, they don't know any more than I do, right? Um, Jackson Pollock looks like, you know, my three-year-old could do it or whatever. That, that kind of populist uh, uh, egalitarianism but when you look at that, what, what it really does is it actually doesn't function to say um, everyone's, cho uh, 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 everyone's choice is equal. What it really does is throw the standard of value to the marketplace. And whatever that the companies can get most people to buy is enshrined as the most important, the most popular, um, and so forth. And so it's not a question of elitist experts versus everyone's opinion. It's really a question of institutions of education versus the marketplace. Um, and and e e equality is, you know, and this is, this is um, uh, if you look at Jeff Bezos and his um, uh, language he used in defense of Amazon, it was all this egalitarian kind of language. We want to get rid of the gatekeepers. We want to, uh, everyone's choice is equal. The consumer should, ch should choose and so forth. It sounds good, it sounds egalitarian, but I argue that it conceals uh, uh, deprivation and, 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 and oppression because let's face it, many people in this society are denied the kind of education, the kind of leisure time that would enable them to cultivate aesthetic uh, uh, sensibilities, to discover uh, works that might enrich their lives that they may not have been exposed to before. Right. So effectively, you know, a relativism, right? A relativism of opinion leads to the monetization of value, right? I mean, like that, that's, that's, that's the sort of outcome, right? That all that, when we think of value, you end up saying, well, how much does that cost? Right? Like that's what value becomes, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a sort of big problem. Um, could you speak a little bit about, you also mount a defense of why aesthetic education itself, um, and first of all, could you just give us like a brief definition of what you mean by that, aesthetic education, uh, and then also why it, it in and of, of itself is a good defense against the, the market that would be everywhere, would like to be everywhere, um, and, and sort of governing uh, your choices and shaping you in various ways. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, aesthetic education is is basically, and this is an experience I've had as a professor many times. Um, you uh, present a work, let's say a work by Jane Austen or by Gwendolyn Brooks or Toni Morrison. You know, uh, pick pick whatever great author you 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 like. Um, you present a work, and uh, the students see it and they read it, and um, their first reaction is. Um, either I like this and can relate, relate to it, or I don't like this and, and can't relate to it. But what's interesting is nothing is more common as a professor of literature to ask the students what's on that particular page that they're responding to, and they will find something that is actually not on that page. The most common thing we have as humans is to project our own understanding onto a new object. 
um, in order to uh, receive and appreciate powerful works of art, it requires that we suspend our projections so that we can begin to see and open our minds to ideas, dynamics, images that we haven't encountered before and that have that potential to expand our mind, to uh, increase the diversity of our perceptions and experiences and so forth. And that's what we teach in, um, uh, uh, in, in uh, English classes, for example, is something we call close reading which is an attention trained on the work that is so close that it defeats our tendency to project and to abstract and, and, and cause us to grapple with, uh, uh, with images and dynamics that are cognitively unfamiliar to us, that uh, uh, defamiliarize, in the, in the words of the Russian formalist critic uh, Viktor Shklovsky, that uh, take our familiar and, and then there's this dynamic that happens is that the work puts our, our own familiar optics for looking at the world, it defamiliarizes those and it creates an opening for us to experience uh, something new. That whole process, which I just sort of, sort of gave a, a snapshot of, um, is, is really what's required uh, uh, to, and it's something that we all, you know, I as a, as a, as a um, you know, immigrant uh, from Ireland, uh, working class parents, first generation college students and so forth, um, I didn't, you know, I, I, I had no experience of literature, right, or, or of art. And it was something that guides, the teachers, that mentors, that professors opened those worlds to me. And I'm profoundly grateful for that. And that's the, the, the uh, uh, that, that process uh, depends on the idea that the, the, the teacher, or the mentor, or the professor, or the critic or the reviewer shows the audience or the student a work and says, hey, you may not appreciate this or find this relatable at once, but I want you to trust me that after we've gone through the, the, the process of, of, of learning how to approach this work, you will at that point find that it was time worth spent, well spent and that you feel that you've, you, um, you've, been, you've grown from that experience. That's the sort of gamble. And so it's not taking away their choice or their equality. It's simply suspending that choice until we've given you enough of an education to be able to make it on a more solid basis, if that makes sense. Totally, right? I mean, I taught this course um, when I was uh, a grad student and a postdoc at, at Columbia, right? And Columbia is known in America as having one of the first uh, great books curriculums that started in the early 20th century. Um, and it, when I taught it, it was called, the, the, it was, it's known as CC, every sophomore has to take it. It's a, ca a capstone course and Columbia still has a gen ed sort of curriculum, right? So that they're making a sort of big judgment right there, right? That you have to read this stuff, you, everybody has to take these, these courses, et cetera. But when they, it's interesting, I was thinking about this when I was reading your book, the way we were told what the course is, is that it was called Contemporary Civilization in the Modern West, CC. And the argument was, well, these are the most influential uh, works in the Western canon, right, in the Western tradition. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, they, they should be read. But once you scratch the surface, you understood that this was kind of inventing a tradition whole cloth just by virtue of putting them all in one syllabus and saying that, you know, Plato to NATO is all connected, you know? Like, I mean, it's, it's kind of an absurdity when you actually go into the history of these things and like yeah. the, the, how these books have been read and how they've circulated across the world, et cetera, right? It's hardly the West. Um, 
and I felt like they they made that argument so they couldn't because they were scared to say the other argument, which is these are really good books. Yes, yes. <laughs> you yes. know, like like these are good books that people should read because guess what? They're better than other ones, and yeah. they're wor- and you go have this one course. You should you should really pay attention, right? Um, it seems like is that s- similar to what you're getting at, right? Like like that's that's the sort of issue here. Absolutely, yeah, and that, that's that's a that's a, a a great way of expressing the the problem. Um, you know, I look, I think that a lot of this um, people reach to to to, to uh, instead be because you're absolutely they're afraid of making value judgments, so they try to reach to values they think are uncontroversial. But many times those values become uh, controversial. So the, the concept of a tradition, right? We need to read these because these are part of the great Western tradition. Well, there's all kinds of aspects of the Western tradition that aren't great, right? And there's and there's all kinds of exclusions. There's all kinds, you know, we get into all kinds of other problems um, as opposed to saying, these are a selection of works. These aren't the only great works. These aren't maybe even the greatest works of all time, but we've got a finite amount of time and we believe these works are powerful, they will um, enrich your lives, they will create uh, uh, interesting perspectives, new perspectives, um, all of these kinds of things and uh, these values, and, and that's what we're gonna share with you. Um, and then you ask the students after you're done, like, did you get something out of this, right? You know, what, what did you get? Out? And, and actually something that's very interesting about that is um, very often it's not until people are much older that they, un- that, they, that they appreciate the value of some of those works that they were exposed to um, when they were uh, when they were younger, um, so you know, and another another very popular means of justifying aesthetic value judgments through other value judgments is morality. We're going to read these books because they make you a better person. They make you more empathetic. They make you more appreciative of diversity or whatever. Um, and I'm suspicious of those claims too because I'm not so sure those are true. You know, I know a lot of writers and English professors and so forth. And I can't actually say they're the most moral people, group of people in the entire world. I'm not saying they're like, you know, particularly immoral, but I, you know, it's, it's not like they're more moral than any other group of people I've ever uh, uh, dealt with. I don't think those stand up either. I think you do have to make the claim for, um, for value and, you, and you, you can't be shy of it because students are smart and they'll know um, that it's an evasion. And, they, and, and very frequently what you're foisting off as the, as the ostensible reason is uh, will be repellent to them. Another uh, related question concerning this question of tradition or canon. If we go with judgment, I think judgment has been paralyzed for so long that these canons get transmitted transmitted statically from generation to generation because people are afraid to make value judgments to say this is valuable, this is important, this is 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 powerful, and maybe this is something that that has lost its power for for a variety of reasons. My view is that if we're intentional, open and honest about judgment and the processes of of professional judgment, um, that's how canons get opened up, right? Um, That's how, for example, a lot of uh, great black authors entered uh, uh, our awareness was not by saying you should read us for moral reasons or political reasons, for people like Ralph Ellison saying, and, 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 and early critics who picked him up saying, this is great, this is, this is powerful stuff, this is, this is just great literature, this is something new, a new form of aesthetic that then brings into our consciousness an entire barrier to suppressed or oppressed uh, aesthetic tradition. Great. Tony, you wanna jump in here? 
Yeah, I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, is, is part of the argument that the monetization of critique has kind of ruined one's own ability to have an opinion? Yeah, well, so um, it's, 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 it's a great question. And, and uh, uh, to answer that, I, I would go to this um, uh, Theodore Adorno, who is a, uh, um, a philosopher and sociologist and a, a left-leaning one in the, in the 60s. Um, and earlier than that, he wrote this famous article called the, uh, uh, the culture industry. And he had, there's one perception from that article that I think is absolutely crucial. A lot of Adorno's critique of the culture industry has lost its force. He was writing at a time in, I think this was written in the, in the, uh, forties. Um, he was writing at a time in which there were a few major studios, a few major recording companies, a few major publishers. There was a lot less diversity of content than there is now. But he had one very valuable uh, uh, observation. He said, you can't think about leisure. You can't think about um, artistic consumption without thinking about work, without thinking about how most people spend their working lives. And he, what he said was, most people in a capitalist society and in America, and I think this is even more true today, the, the majority of their time is colonized by soul-crushing labor. Mm -hmm. And that leaves them very little time to be able to invest in the kind of uh, uh, a patient discovery and evaluation of aesthetic objects than, uh, than, than if they were, for example, wealthy, right? And, and, and leisure, uh, leisure uh, of the leisure class. Um, and so, and so with the implication of that, and, and I loved uh, David Graeber's book, uh, Bullshit Jobs. I don't know if you, if you, if you looked at that, Yeah. you know, he just, it, it, he did this, uh, uh, you know, all these surveys showing that the large majority of Americans and, and English people, um, the two, uh, the two, uh, societies he was, he was looking at, um, feel their, their, their lot, their jobs are, uh, of no value are a waste of time are worthless and so forth. So, and that, that's depressing as hell to, to, to find oneself. And I've, I've worked crappy jobs. Um, I'm sure many, many of us have. Um, and so if you're, if you're, if your labor time is, 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 is consumed by that, what the culture industry does is it feeds you back the kind of lowest common denominator stuff, the stuff that you will, will sort of help pass the time. And nothing is more common for me in talking to people to say, hey, I bought this book or I bought this uh, or I went to see this movie or whatever, but it's crap. It helps to pay, pass the time. It's not like I think it's great. So a consumer choice is not equivalent to an aesthetic decision in many cases. And furthermore, our, our, our work life has deprived us of the uh, capacity to cultivate aesthetic education on our own time. And so, um, and, and I, I feel that our institutions of education can play an important ameliorative role in endowing us with the capacity for aesthetic education. And the marketplace is not. The marketplace does not do that. To talk about the monetization of critique, there's this great article by Christian Lorenzen um, a reviewer and writer I know who, uh, who came out in Harper's uh, a couple years ago in which he, uh, he talks about why he was, uh, I think he was fired as a reviewer for New York Magazine. 
And he talks about that experience and he says, look, reviewers used to be people who the general public could rely on for objective aesthetic choice uh, uh, decisions. What's happened is um, more and more reviewers have become an adjunct, as he puts it, of the marketing mm-hmm. arm mm-hmm. of publishers, music, and so forth. And um, the market is eroding uh, uh, those bastions that used to give the public, that the public always relied on for guidance in making aesthetic choices. Think of what's happened to the journalism industry, right? Journalism industry has been completely decimated. It's totally dependent on clicks. It's totally dependent on on, on these advertisers and so forth. Um, so, 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 so to sum all this up, if you're well off, if you've got are fortunate enough to have a, a good job that gives you a lot of vacation and leisure time, maybe this doesn't seem like a pressing issue to you. If you're fortunate enough to, to have had a, a a good aesthetic education, maybe this seems like something where, hey, I can make decisions. I'm confident in my decisions and so forth. But because of various kinds of deprivation, because of what's happened to the journal journalism industry and so forth, that's not the situation that many Americans find themselves in, and that's why I think. Uh, institutions of aesthetic education are so important. Yeah, there was this. Um, it's interesting because I, I'm like working on this whole thing on critiquing. And years ago, there was a, there's the, the art critic for New York Mag named Jerry Saltz. And he um, I had produced a show called Work of Art, and he was one of the judges on it. And um, we weren't friends, but we became friendly enough where we'd communicate. And this is right around the time George W. Bush was releasing artwork. It was like, you know, (laughs) him in a bathtub and his feet out or showering. And Jerry went on CNN because Gawker had like been like, this guy's art sucks. Everyone was like, it sucks. And he went on and was like, you guys are wrong. His art is good and like defended it. And, you know, (laughs) social media went nuts on him because, you know, it's very hard to separate the art from the monster when it comes especially to Bush. (laughs) So like, even if it's good, we'll never know. Um, I don't, I don't think it's very good. Um, and then he walked it back, you know, like now his position is George Bush's art sucks. And that's kind of when I remember being like, Oh yeah, it's part of the monetization of critique. It's also, the stress of a critic now where it's you don't you don't get to just have an opinion all the time because opinion like that could ruin your career um so it's it's, i feel like it's a complicated relationship um a lot of people don't quite understand that you know a critique of something like that is just a one's opinion take it or leave it it becomes a you know the mob if we disagree you know how dare you say that restaurant sucks we love that restaurant you know you're an idiot (laughs) so maybe the bravery has been lost in it and maybe they should just use like aliases and just be opinionated because that's what we really want right we want someone to tell us what's good that's what i want tell me that restaurant's good i'll tell you if you're wrong later but that's how we want to try things right is we rely on this this music or music writer to tell us that the album we like is amazing or you know, I happen to think a lot of music is terrible right now. And I love finding an old, you know, angry music critic that agrees with me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, yeah, and yeah, that's that's ex- that's exactly right. And, you know, and, and Christian in, in his piece, what, what, he, what he's one of the things he's talking about is TV. And he's like the, the endless like sort of mm. people saying TV is awesome now. It's better than ever. And it's one terrible. of the things he would say, yeah, exactly. He wants to say like, you know, most of those shows suck. They suck just as bad as they've always sucked. And the 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 it, you know and, and uh, just a personal anecdote i went on um 
I think I, I, I published a book on, on a memoir of my own childhood that was sort of told through computer games. And I went on, um, I don't know if it was NPR, one of the places I went on. Sure. And I was talking about Nintendo and I basically was talking about why I thought Nintendo sucked. Just, just as a kind of, you know, thing. I just, and I talk about it in my book. And I got like, you know, hundreds of emails. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not on social media, but like they still, you know, hundreds of emails just saying like, you are shitting on my childhood or whatever, you know what I mean? And like, and, and all this kind of stuff. If I'm, I've got, you know, I've got tenure, I'm a professor, right? If, if I'm a, a journalist, right, um, I have good reason to be, it's a precarious situation, right? And so so you're absolutely exposed. And social media, you're, you know, that, that adds in a whole different angle of this distorted quasi-populism, because very often we know how easily those opinions are manipulated by companies, right? And by brands and by the legions of fans that are sort of, um, Oh, how dare you critique the Marvel, any new Marvel movie or, or say that Ugh. it's not the greatest thing of all time or whatever, right? And, and so um, the capacity to critique the culture industry, you're absolutely right. It, it, and I like the way you, you describe it as a monetization of critique. It is a folding of critique into the marketplace. Now, it's not that critique wasn't always part of the marketplace. These journalists, you know, were, were always, uh, these, are, these are by and large profit-making uh, publications. But the internet and digitalization has folded things back to a kind of instant by instant, immediate responsiveness to the fluctuations of the marketplace that I think is is new, especially when you think of clicks. Now that people, uh, uh, publishers have ways of, of uh, saying, well, your review didn't get that many clicks or got a lot of negative, yeah. negative votes. That's not good for our brand, right? You know, and it's fascinating to me that the, the uh, publisher of The New York Times gave an interview in which he said, one of the surprising things was when we switched from a, a, an institution supported largely by advertising companies and, and switched to a subscriber model, we lost a lot of our objectivity because the, the hmm. advertisers wouldn't necessarily pull um, their advertising if we went hard against Bush or went, you know, were critical of Biden or whatever. But now if I, and this was his example, I believe, if, if we publish an article that's critical of Biden, we lose 100,000 subscribers the next day. Wow. wow. You know what I'm saying? So, so, it's, so it's, it's really complicated. It's, it's, it's actually this kind of acceleration of, of, of the market, um, transformation of it really from a kind of old model, an older model in which something like critique still had a place, a precarious place, a, a compromised place in the ways, but it still had a place to, to, a, place, to, to a state now where um, it's all about feeding people's preferences and preconceptions back to them. And that's well, not a, yeah. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, like what, listening to you talk about that, you have to think, um, and I happen to agree that I don't think TV is that great right now. I think we had a few years there, like at the launch of H not let's not call it the launch of HBO, but the premium launch of HBO, Sopranos, The Wire, Six Feet Under, those shows. I thought that was the best time in television. Um, I think we're on the way out and I believe it's because of these algorithms and social media where essentially these computers are learning behavior and that is that becomes the the main ingredient in the art that they buy or 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 put on their platforms and you can see it in all the murder shows like People like murders. People like you know every single one of these shows is the same. We we yep. just started yep. watching you know the new the new fad is um, Mar of East Town with with Kate Winslet. She's an amazing actress and there's great acting. We 
after the third episode, I was like, I, I know this show. I've seen this show 15 oh. times. It's just different actresses in it. So we stopped watching. And, you know, there's got to be something. Um, and I wonder how that comes into it, if you have an opinion on it. But, you know, we are going through, like, the plus side of social media is we are going through a more in-our-face reckoning of our past that we've gently swept under the rug, especially when it comes to black rights, uh, LBGTQ. Um, so when that stuff comes into critique as well, um, I wonder, you know, where this is all going, right? Because, you know, sh the best example that I can say that was polarizing is the last Chappelle stand up, you know, I'm a Chappelle fanatic. I think he's one of the greatest comedians ever walked the face of the earth, but mm -hmm. his last special, um, for younger people that aren't in our age group, it was highly offensive to some of them. And they, I read tons of critiques where they're like, he's out of touch. He's an idiot. He doesn't get anything. And I've internally felt angry because I'm like, you guys are <laughs> stupid kids. And you're, but you know, as someone that's super liberal, I kind of get what they're saying, but they're now the ones critiquing. So it's, it affects, you know, some of these older artists and, and, um, you know, I don't even really know what my point is, but it's, I guess it's complicated, right? This new, new, new age we're living in where everything is instant and you can get taken down because of one, uh, critique. It must be stressful for the artist, the critic and everybody. Look, yeah, I mean, a, Mike, can I just say one yeah, thing please, before please, you jump please. in? Like, it sounds like, you know, there's that old Duke Ellington line, like if it sounds good, it is good, right? And and mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that's that's the problem is that, and this goes to your argument, Mike, which is that in a weird way, people look at a criticism as an index to the morality of the critic. Oh yeah, right. Mm. You know that that in, in somehow because you've come to this position, you are therefore racist. You are therefore this, therefore therefore that, right. uh, without necessarily saying like, is the does it sound good or is it not? You know, like, like, like that never actually happens. It's more about um, actually what's outside of the work, right? So what's outside of what you were talking about, close reading and stuff like that, all the suspension is not happening. It's actually everything, perhaps even but the work. Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to say that. Sorry. No, that's, that's <laughs> both of those are absolutely right. And, 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 and um, you know, you're, 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 you're you're absolutely right that it's it's the it's morality it's it's um, and this is and this has to be understood I think in historical context this is nothing new right Americans have always been hyper moralistic in their cultural sphere very mm -hmm. pur puritanical right um, and and if if you look back Americans as a society um, has never been that comfortable with art and literature unless we can be reassured it's making us more moral. Right mm. now, the, the the particular content of that morality changes over time, right? Um, but uh, literature classes, for example, as vehicles of moral education, um, that expectation has always been there, and it's been something that writers and professors and critics and artists have fought against, uh, basically from the beginning of the Republic, right? Um, and 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 of course before. This goes back to Plato. Plato said, "Look, we don't want artists or poets." in our republic. You know what I mean? We don't want them because they can't be trusted to be moral. Artists and poets should only praise, I think he said famous men, right? They should be praising, you know, uh, 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 the morality of the time. And, um, you know, I disagree with Plato, obviously, right? But his position is a powerful one, right? And it's it's one we see today, which is, which is kind of irresistible, which is like the, the force of morality is irresistible. 
um, it, it will always win in any contest of values. The kind of questions that we see about aesthetic values, about is it elitist to say that, uh, or, or I might be afraid of seeming elitist to say this is good or this is bad. Professors and other people have no problem making moral judgments. And they've just shifted to making aesthetic judgments to making moral judgments, right? Um, my question is really, you know, A, I think it's important to open up a space between morality and art. Not to say that we should sort of like leave our morality at the door when we go into artworks, you can't do that. But rather to sort of suspend that immediate reaction. Because there's no way to teach writers that wrote before 2005 um, if, if you're not gonna be uh, dealing with some, some ideas that are offensive to the most up-to-date morality, right? Um, and and that goes for black authors, it goes for uh, uh, Asian, it goes, it goes right across the board. And so I have to say to my students, look, we're dealing with something that was written in a different time, right? We're dealing with people who had views that we may mm -hmm. find repellent, right? But this is still great literature. This is stuff, and you don't have to accept their moral views, right? You know what I mean? It can make you rethink, you know, it, it can give you insight into how those views were created and so forth. Um, all that I think is is just very important. Teaching Frederick Douglass today, if you really read Frederick Douglass, it is profoundly hostile to a lot of the racial attitudes we have today. Right? We want to stop teaching Rachel, uh, Frederick Douglass, um, and, and that goes that goes that goes uh, across the board. So I think that kind of instantaneous morality, and I think it does it, it, it is it is a adjunct of market culture, morality, moralism. And market culture are very American, and their union is very American. And I think the way they progress, is, uh, the way they go forward, is is, is incredible. And you, know, you see this at every level. The only TV I watch is the NBA, and it was kind of amazing. Me too. <laughs> Me too. It, it, and it was kind of amazing, right? Last year, I'm watching the the, the NBA, and um, Nike is all of a sudden all Black Lives Matter. It is it is all the the beating the drum, and I'm like. You guys are literally doing child labor. You know what I mean? You're, what you, the kind of labor practices are not that different from slave labor that, that Nike is engaged in historically. This is, this is a known thing. And so the hypocrisy, the, the, the ease with which corporations can manipulate certain kinds of, 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 of morality that circulates on the surface, right? Um, and I think, I think aesthetic education is part of what enables us to go below the surface and gives us kind of a resistance to some degree, to that kind of manipulation. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good argument just for it being a good bullshit detector, right? You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's that, you know, by virtue of seeing through these different layers and, and, and understanding the context of things and um, that you can get beyond, you know, <laughs> the the... One one month after, um, say January sixth, all the corporations are back to giving their contributions to all the guys who were you yeah, know, totally, helping. Totally. You know, like like so yeah. it's like you know, um, it's totally totally absurd. So one thing, just just to we're we're coming up on time. So just to wrap up, one of one of the thing, one of the arguments um, that might well be made, and but I think you've you've mounted quite a compelling defense um, in in response to it. Um, is that the the idea of um, particularly in English departments, and I'm sure as you know, um, but arguably you know in other um, humanities and even social sciences, uh, the the argument to sort of decolonize the curriculum, right, to sort of open it up to other voices um, that have been historically uh, repressed and so on, um, and the 
the question then becomes is that you know there's actually we ha we do have a lot of really good literature <laughs> like, there's like mm -hmm. a lot of good stuff and uh and we only have these short lifetimes and not wow. even um people who do it for a profession probably get to read all the books they actually want to read right so um what you know what then becomes the standard right so like one of one of i think one of the sort of ma major arguments um that is mounted is that well okay if you're going to have these aesthetic standards who's setting the standards right and so the argument could be well it could be literature professors right it could i mean the, the experts right it should in the in this case it should be the rule of experts um and and um the the counter to that is that well because of the you know accretions of injust systematic injustice over time literature professors are very sort of have a very particular vision of what good literature is um and therefore how then do you have these other voices integrated yeah yeah no, that's a that's a that's a great question that's a conversation that's absolutely happening um as you say in literature departments and 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 in lots of departments um there's a couple of things i would i would want to i i'd want to say about that um, the first is just an observation, which I've always found it amusing that people who's, who might say that um, English professors or art professors are incompetent to make good aesthetic decisions because of their um, because of, 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 of the background of oppression that therefore, but we're totally fine with them making moral decisions for us. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like that. That has always seemed uh, 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 bizarre to me. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, what I would say is that um, it's absolutely the case that racism and oppression and exclusion have defined the study of literature in uh, in America, in in the English-speaking world, in, in in many parts of the world, um, and that uh, it's it's crucial on for many reasons to address that. Not least of which is that there is a lot of amazing literature that has been gone by the wayside. Right? There is no. We're very fortunate that there's no shortage of wonderful works by people of color uh, 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 today, right? And, and in the last 30 years, 40 years uh, uh, going back, there's, there's many amazing works. I teach many of them, many of my colleagues teach many of them. And part of being um, intentional about judgment and saying, oh, we're, instead of saying, we're teaching these works because they're important or they're part of the tradition. If instead you say, we're teaching these works because they're awesome, they're beautiful, they're powerful, they're weird, they're strange, they make you think, they're defamiliarizing. That, by being honest about our values, that enables us to incorporate new voices into a canon. It, it enables us to discover aesthetic values that may have been uh, occluded in the past. I teach a, a book by Claude Brown, uh, who, who is a, 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 a black writer who wrote a, a, a work about his experience in mid-century, growing up in mid-century Harlem. Um, that has largely been neglected uh, uh, because people, in my view, didn't understand its aesthetic value, right? And so I, I basically say, hey, this is a book by a black author that is awesome, but we need to change our aesthetic categories a little bit to be able to, you know, appreciate this work, right? Um, that said, there's also a case when we go back further in time, because I'm not a, a proponent of only reading works written in the last 50 years or even 100 years. Um, we're going to encounter works uh, uh, that, for various reasons, are less uh, 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 written less often by women and people of color for the simple reason that the oppression of those populations often deprive them of the capacity and the leisure uh, uh, and the education to write. 
And I still think we should read those works because many of the great uh, 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 post-colonial writers, you think of uh, people, everyone from uh, 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 V.S. Naples, I mean, all kinds of, 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 of great writers, Toni Morrison writes about this. These writers became great writers in part by reading those great writers of the past, right? And so I want today's students to have that opportunity as well. The, the, the other thing I will say about this is um, there's only so much you can do by tweaking with the, the curriculum and so forth. Uh, in many ways, what really needs to happen is increasing the diversity and the access to aesthetic education of um, currently oppressed people, right? Uh, uh, it doesn't make a lot of difference. I mean, how good is it if I'm teaching a very decolonialized syllabus to mostly rich uh, uh, white and Asian, predominantly white and Asian kids, right? You know that that like that seems that seems strange. Why can't we get aesthetic education into the K through 12 school system, right? And I think about uh, one example is the Motown grades. Thinking about great popular uh, works of art, the Motown grades all talk about the arts education they received in the Detroit public schools. They talk about, that's where we learned how to play piano. That's where I learned to, to, to do X, Y, and Z. And they created all this amazing, uh, uh, amazing stuff. We know that that education has been dramatically cut. We're talking about Bush, no you know, all, 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 all of these changes to the, uh, to the school system. Um, so I think that access is really crucial. Who's getting into the classroom? Who's getting into the profession? Who has the opportunity to become professors, to become writers, to become artists? That is, and that's a larger problem that we can deal with just in our classrooms and, our, and designing our syllabi. But I think that is really crucial, and it, and, it, and it requires making the case for aesthetic education and judgment. Mohammed, before we wrap up, yeah, um, who's winning the NBA Finals? Oh, um, I mean, it, the Suns just look impossible right now for the Bucks to handle. I mean, that that. The, the sort of late play in the first half with the ball movement. I don't know if you saw that last of night. Of course I did. Uh, oh, my God, man. That was just it's, – it's, it's, they're just on a different level. And Giannis is awesome, but he's, he's not like Le, – you know, he's compared to – they were comparing him to LeBron in some of his moves, the, 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 uh, the chase down blocks and so forth. But he doesn't necessarily, I think, have that capacity to make those other teammates better with the yeah. assists and so forth. And so um, – I don't I don't know what it is, but it's it's uh, I'm happy to see for you know Chris Paul and and, and Booker. I, I mean it's it's an exciting series. It's not the same old thing we've been getting. So so, no. uh, but me I think too. it's going to be the Suns. Yeah, me too. Great. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much. I'm going to judge your book. I'm going to say it's really good. <laughs> People should buy it and read it. Um, it's it's we'll put it on the website too. Yeah, we'll put it on the website for sure. Um, and. Yeah. By the way, have you been back to Oberlin? I, have you given know, any I, talks there? I would imagine, like, like did the English department were like, "Hey, Mike." I, yeah, come I, on. you know, I, I, I've been back, um, and um, it's, uh, uh, it's a, it's just a trip. It's just a trip to go back there. You know what I mean? Have you been back? I have not. Yeah, I have not. I went back like actually when I was a teaching high school in D.C. The English department asked me to come back like two years after I graduated. And be like, hey, what's it like to be a teacher and an English grad? But that was it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's a different it's a, it, it's just a different space. I mean, I think they've they've had some struggles lately too. You know what I mean? Which you probably which yeah. you probably read about um, financial and otherwise. I'm friends with some of the faculty um, in, in the department there. And it's 
I had this fantasy of going back there. When we moved here, I had this fantasy of going back and living there. And my wife was just like, hell no. It's in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. There's no way. There's just no way we're going back. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I loved it. I had, I had a great time there. It was, and it's so great to see you again. I know. I know. It's been, so it's we'll been stay in touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Thank uh, you, thanks Mike. for the book. And thanks, um, we'll keep in touch. Awesome, man. Great pod, yeah, yeah. He's great. Yeah, Mike oh is. Uh, uh, he's a he's a great guy, and he's an intellectual force of nature. You know, I mean, he's he's uh, the book is is awesome. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really good. It's a very good book. It's not that long actually, but it takes you t- some time to get through it because his arguments are are like really sophisticated. But yep. he also like, he's got this crazy thing where he can write super clearly even though he's like way up in the clouds in terms of his thinking. Yep. Um, so that's a rare gift. So yeah, I, yeah, I, we'll I put it on the website it. and you can check it out. You know, yeah, everybody should get absolutely. it. It's, absolutely. It's, a, it's definitely a unique topic. Not a lot of people, not a lot of people are talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's like not a lot of people are talking about it openly, but everybody's doing it. Oh, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, like I think that's what its value is, is like, mm-hmm. he's talking about something we all do and, and then various people pretend they're not. You know, yep. and that's the point. So, yeah. Exciting. Exciting stuff. All right. Well, next week, I guess, right? Next week, yeah. Another one. Absolutely. Keep going. Yeah. Um, right. Everybody sign up for our newsletter. Um, it's on our website. Uh, please go check out our website, www.nopoliticsatthedinnertable.com. Um, type it once and it'll always pop up again. Uh, yeah. You can see all our past episodes, our newest ones, get some merch. Um you know, and stick with us. We'll tell your yeah. friends we're we're yeah. we're starting to grow, and we want to want to make sure you guys send it to good people. That's right. Only send it to good people. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No politics at the yeah, exactly. No politics at the dinner table is produced by Ahmed Prakash with tunes by our buddy Jeep Beta Roy. Um, we will see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>